I just slipped through an exam and you're listening to a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Breathe of Science. This time, there's three of us. It's not just me and Finn. Um, Flynn, Finn. Um, we've got our friend Amy Blake, who's joining us. I have Amy in my part of the world, in Ōtatahi Christchurch. Um, Amy, say hello to everyone. Cool. Kia ora, everyone. Thank you very much for having me, boys. It's a privilege to be here. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for coming. <laughs> oh, it should be fun. It should be fun. Yeah. Well, what have we got in store this week, Panico? What's is it regular viewing? Well, regular viewing to begin with, I think, which is science news. Always, always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and this stuff, this time it's actually not doom and gloom, Mr. Robson. That's rare. If you can believe it. And actually really, really New Zealand relevant too. So um, we've got actually one out of North America. We've got the oldest footprints discovered in North America. And it's 7,000 years earlier than they previously thought humans landed in North America. So it's kind of blowing the whole archaeological scene out there, out that way, out of the water, because now they don't really know how to how to handle it all. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a big focus as well as anthropology. It's always nice to hear some positive things about what happened in the past. <laughs> yeah. So the new fossil footprints were found um, on an ancient lake bed in New Mexico um, in, within White Sands National Park, and they date back 23,000 years. How does that tie up with what we know about um, sort of ancient humans in that sort of time period generally? Well, it's been a big scene of like, I don't know, scientific dogma around the archaeological dig sites in North America. They've said it like thousands of years. Well, they had like, um, obviously this one's 7,000 years earlier than previously thought, but there's been a lot of dogma around what you can and can't do as an archaeologist. Archaeologists is a big consensus within the archaeological community around it's not kosher to dig past this point because it's a waste of time. And so to a lot of new age archaeologists and Graham Hancock speaks at length about it. He's got written a few books about it um, that because they haven't looked and because there's been this dogma around this whole dating thing and not going past it, no one really knows the real answer. They've kind of just haven't looked. And why do you think that's changed or why has this occurred when like you talk about this established dogma? I, I'm not too sure. I think it's like the whole like out of Africa kind of model. And they just placed it. They gave it a time and said, "Hey, this is this is when it occurred, and and that's 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 it. And we're going to run with that." And no one really challenged it because it was just accepted by, by the whole community. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's really interesting. Have you got anything else? Like, what it's I- a it's a well, it's um within like there's yeah Graham Hancock's the biggest biggest voice in that community, being like, guys, we actually really need to check this stuff out because it's it's um. And he's, he doesn't have a background in archaeology, I'll say that to begin with. He's a writer, he's a British writer. And his friend, um, I've, I forget his name off the top of my head. It's oh, Randall Carson. Randall Carson, he, um, he's a geologist and he's been working closely with Graham and they've come up with a few hypotheses that, that, that there have been humans in North America further back than the current um, consensus and they were, they've been ostracized quite heavily and dragged through the mud quite a lot. And that's, in the past few years. That's got a lot to do with the movement across the Bering Strait, eh? 
and sort of the yep. geographic. Yeah, it's to do with the it's to do with the glacial maximum and the timing of that and 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 all that. So it's there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of skepticism around it all. So it's an interesting thing to keep a look at, and um, I'm sure Graham will be pretty happy that 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 discovery has been made for sure. And if we move to if we move to astrology, an Einstein ring has been observed for one of the first times. And I didn't even know they existed. Yeah. Do you want to explain what they are? Well, I don't know how well you know physics there, Flynn. <laughs> I assume pretty well. I don't know how well Amy knows physics either. So I'll try and explain. I didn't even, it took me a while to figure it out. Um, it's light, light when it travels a long distance can bend through space and time. And that's to do with big gravitational entities. So it can bend round. And so an Einstein ring is observed when a galaxy bends around a big gravitational object and kind of looks like a galaxy floating in liquid. So if you want to have a look at it, to those listening, search up an Einstein ring and um, the Hubble telescope, God, the Hubble telescope, I love it, um, discovered an Einstein ring of a galaxy that's 9.4 billion light years away. So that's crazy. So, I mean, because it's light, like we can sort of... I know, especially with like in astronomy, a lot of the um, pictures are kind of and the lights and colors that you see are sort of based on lights that you might not actually see in the visual spectrum. But are they quite cool images that they've created with it? Yeah, yeah, they've created like some really cool images. So you've got like galaxies around this Einstein ring and then you've got the Einstein ring itself, which looks like like a molten galaxy pretty much. Oh, that's crazy. That's really cool. And it's one of the first times, it's one of the, because Einstein obviously theorized it and um, they've, they've always been proven correct many years later, as, as he often is, a real, a real giant that we're standing on the shoulders of. Yeah, just, just to be consistent with our uh, terminology that we use, eh, Ben? Yeah, we love it. And, and coming closer to home, seven new species of deep sea sponge have been discovered in New Zealand's deep ocean which I thought was cool. I always love hearing about new species and, and, and where they're popping up. And it's cool that we're still discovering things in the deep ocean because it is the frontier we can explore currently, you know, too, too born too late to explore the earth, born too early to explore the stars, but we can explore the earth. Yeah. And like, that's your specialty, um, like in your, what you're studying. So like, like how important is it sort of like the new discoveries? Is it something that happens every day or are they like really important to understand the ecosystems? Well, we don't really know much about deep sea, deep sea ecosystems. We know they're really fragile and they're kind of desolate. So discovering a new species down there, well, it also takes a lot of money to have fun these expeditions. So whenever there's something to do with the deep sea, it's always a, it causes a bit of a buzz, which is which is nice because I don't think a lot of people think too much about the deep ocean. You got, well, there's not that many charismatic animals like dolphins or whatever living down there. It's all like invertebrates, like weird looking tube worms and the like. But sponges, man, sponges, so cool. If you want to hear more sponges, go to my chat with Miles Lamar, head of marine science. Yeah, that was the first episode. That was that was quite crazy. Miles had some really good stories because um, he's been an Antarctic scientist uh just about sort of like the environments and the adaptations and the sort of animals, especially sponges that sort of live in those conditions. Yeah, hard out. And we have a new discovery as well, a giant penguin fossil discovered in New Zealand. Um, Unlike other penguins, this one actually has long legs. So it's a lanky boy. 
And um, it was discovered from a field trip that took place in 2006 by the Hamilton Junior Naturalist Club. So congrats to the kids that went on that. Um, they finally analyzed the fossil and determined it's a new species. Yeah, I read a bit about that actually. And they found it and the teacher instantly knew or like the club coordinator or whoever it was, he was like, this is something different that we haven't seen before. And he really sort of like made sure that they were preserved and they got onto it. And it's just crazy that um, like New Zealand is one of the hotspots for penguins and fossils and proto-penguins. Um, and I think it's really cool that like, you know, little kids were able who live in New Zealand were able to have an impact on sort of like the scientific history. It's always exciting. It's always exciting. I wish I was, I wish I was on that field trip so badly. Have we got anything else, Ben? No, that's, that's all I had for Science News. It's was been pretty slow. Uh, that's, pretty slow. It's been pretty interesting. Like, I think um, it's always nice to hear about new species, and that's definitely not doom and gloom, which we usually talk about with sort of climate change and, uh, and con- conservation and stuff like that. Um, it's easier to talk about the animals um, when they're already dead. <laughs> um, yeah. I, well, I think I might move on to a bit of... Uh, I don't know what we're going to call the segment now because it's a bit of Biden bunker. It's a bit of Trump talk. It's a bit of everything, eh, Ben? Well, yeah, we're going to be all at it. It's a, I don't know, a party mix. Yeah, it's a it's a mix and mash. A party mix section. Um, so I'll start off with a bit of Joe Biden news. I've only got two two pieces. I've got one for Joe and one for old Donny boy. Um, the first one is Biden receives uh, another Pfizer COVID vaccine shot and it's his booster shot. Um, and it's because recently the FDA approved booster shots for those age 65 or older and those who have underlying health conditions or are at an increased uh, risk due to their work environment. Um, and it's mainly for those who have been vaccinated with the double shot. Um, and after six months, the effectiveness of the vaccine falls. Um, so it's just making sure that people have sort of an, a, a strong immune response um, when they're going to be on the front line or more receptive um, what they were saying is that with protection against symptomatic cases falling from 96 to 84% after six months, um, a booster shot restores the effectiveness to about f- 95%, which just means that it's like back up to being um, really efficient and effective. Um, so good old Joe, he did it. Have a- we all had our shots? First dose, maybe second dose? Um, I had my first shot. I had my first dose last week. Have you had yours? Before? I have. Amy, have you? Are you dosed up? Yeah. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I've had my first shot. Second shot, yeah, I did for six weeks. So I'll get it like early November. That's really good. I feel like especially because oh, yeah. we're all in sort of the age bracket that got it last, it's good to say that we're all onto it. I didn't even feel it. Yeah, well, that's good. I, I felt it the next day when I was uh, had to lug around paint pails and I just sort of had like a dead arm. I was like, <laughs> oh. Um, but yeah, some people, some people got like, had like an acute immune response, which I thought was pretty interesting and pretty good to see. Um, a lot of people complaining about that, but you kind of need a bit of an immune response to get those, to get those, um, uh, antibodies going, the antibodies going. Yeah. And I, I think I like a lot of people don't realize that, that like, if you're getting some symptoms, that's actually you having a really strong immune system and that's your immune system kicking in. And especially for younger people that's more likely to happen. So you're likely to feel sort of like um, a strong immune response, but it's, it's an immune response to mRNA, which goes into your system and just helps your body code for antibodies. Um, so it's not fighting off an infection or anything. It's just your body's natural 
um, defense system coming into place when foreign mRNA comes in. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's. I think it's really good that Joe got his on camera. I mean, he's 78, so he's well within that bracket of needing a booster shot, the old boy. Um, so it's just good, I think, Sleepy doing Joe. it publicly. Yeah, old Sleepy Joe. Um, I've got some news for Trump for Trump as well, the the uh, Grease man. I know we love catching up with them. Um, ben, I don't don't know if you realize, but I, I think uh, Trump wasn't too happy with the election results uh, last election. And he was uh, throwing a... Shocker. Yeah, he was throwing a couple sort of accusations around um, and the Republicans uh, raised a whole lot of money to do some legal battles. And one of the things was to review some of the state's um, election counts. Um, and one of the big ones was Arizona because Biden just got a very, very close win there. And a review of results by members of the Republican Party um, has just come back and found that Joe Biden won Arizona's most populous county by an even greater margin than initially recorded. Uh, which has capped a widely panned effort to uh, to pr- promote voter fraud. Um, so the latest recount yielded 99 additional votes for Biden and 261 fewer votes for Trump. Um, and it's it's not entirely the end of sort of Trump's legal battles to undermine um, Joe Biden's victory. Democracy. That, yeah. Not even Joe Biden. Just undermine <laughs> democracy at this point, yeah. I think. Yeah, he, he does a lot of things. Um, and in Texas on Thursday, the Secretary of State's office said that the state had become an audit of the presidential election in its four largest counties. And this came only hours after Trump publicly called on the Republican governor to launch an audit. Um, so it's still going. There's still going to be stuff. I feel like it's never ending with Trump. Yeah, it's, I think it's he's going to be the thorn, the squeaky squeaky wheel that just does not go away, unfortunately, for the, for the people, the yeah. lovely people in America. And I mean, there's a chance that he runs again, the old man, but uh, <laughs> uh, let's let's cross our fingers. But I feel like there's a chance that uh, we'll be seeing more of the Don in the future. Uh, I hope not. I really hope not. I'm sick of him. I'm fed up. That's all I had, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good enough to get to to move on to some other stuff. I think before we have Amy, uh, we we're going to have a great chat. I think with Amy about um, what she's studying and just a couple of questions that we had um, in terms of uh, her research. She's at Lincoln University. Um, but before that, Ben, we promised the viewers last or the viewers, the listeners last episode that we would talk about New Zealand's native and endemic species. Um, after our genetics-themed episode last week. Yes, no, I do, I do recall this. Yeah. I do recall this. Um, so I brought a couple animals in that I just thought I might want to talk about, and you have a vast bank of um, New Zealand ecology um, and fauna uh, and flora uh, experience. So I just thought I'd start us off with a couple that I was um, interested in but also surprised about. All right. Give it to me, Flynn. Yeah, um, the first one is one that we talked about last week when I was talking about coronavirus, and it's the um, New Zealand short-tailed bat, and it's um, endemic to New Zealand. It's one of only two endemic land mammals to New Zealand, the other being the long-tailed bat. Um, ben, do you want to talk about what their most uh, prolific feature is? Well, they're like a lot of our native birds, actually. They just don't fly, which kind of... Are they bats then or are they rats? I don't know. Rats, mice, I don't know. There's a fine yeah. line. So yeah. they're, they're, they're bats and they, they walk on all fours, but they still have the wing adaptation. So they, they could fly, 
but they don't. They crawl across the floor and they're, they're pollinators too. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll throw some stats in there just to back you up. Um, so they spend around, around 30% of their time foraging, catching, flying insects in the air. So that's when they're, um, what is it called, Ben, when they're all um, together, just living up on the on the ceiling? Roosting. 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 That's when they're roosting. Um, and they spend a 40%, a, a further 40% feeding from plants, but they spend the remaining 30% of their time um, in hunting on the forest floor, um, which is the highest proportion of any other species of bat. It just does it like no other bat. Well, it's like our birds. We just we just love uniqueness down here in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I had another one that we talked briefly about last week. I thought we'd cover a little bit more in depth the ones that we talked about last week, which is the tuatara, which is possibly my favorite endemic species in New the Zealand. Living, the living fossil, as we like to call it. Yeah. And, the living and, fossil. I had, a, I had a couple things that I that I found out about them in terms of that regard as well. So it's the sole surviving member of its order, which originated in the Triassic period around 250 million years ago. Um, and they're, they're referred to as a living fossil, but research has showed categorically that they do have regular mutations and changes in their genome. So they, they haven't been stagnant. They have been evolving, but their physiological sort of state and their appearance has just stayed the same for almost the whole 250 million years, which is just crazy. Yeah, they've been pretty pretty steadfast in their, in their look. They look ancient. Like you can tell by looking at a tuatara that they're, 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 they're quite an old species. Yeah, and one other thing is they live quite old as well. So they have one of the slowest growth rates of any reptile and they grow large for their first 35 years of their lives. But their lifespan can be anywhere from 60 to 100 years and um, they live so long that researchers aren't quite sure how long they would live in captivity. But like 200 years isn't off the cards. It's something like these 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 old dogs could uh, could just keep on going, and we wouldn't know because we haven't been researching them long enough. Yeah, it's it's buzzy to think like animals can live out a human lifespan. I I, f- I feel like that's lost on a lot of people in terms of like. You know, like a tree that's like 500 years old is is old. That That's a long time ago. That's, I don't even know what was happening in the world 500 years ago. Yeah, I think one of the crazy stats is, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but I think it was like in the last 50 years or like the turn of the century or something, one of the Galapagos to- tortoises that Charles Darwin brought back from the Galapagos was still alive. Like... Like, it's crazy that some animals actually live, like, the whole time in in which we've been able to understand or even fathom evolution. There's been an animal that's just been hanging around just somewhere. Hanging out. Doing its thing. Yeah. Um, And also, the other thing about Tuatara that I thought was really interesting, and you might have a couple things to say, is that they might be greatly impacted by climate change because the, um, the sex in which... Uh, the hatchlings will become is temperature dependent Mm. so as the climate changes the ratio of males to females in the population will change in that area yeah it's like it's like all reptiles so like turtles are facing the same the same issue with um especially because they nest on beaches so beaches get quite warm when exposed to the sun so they're, they're having a bit of issue so much so that like governments are coming to remove the eggs and then incubating them at set temperatures to to try even out that that ratio 
it's going to be a big issue. What does that say about conservation? I know Tuatara, they definitely try and put them on sanctuary islands. Um, does it mean they just have to like consider moving the population? And like, is that a hard thing to do for species? Well, I mean, we did it with the Takahe pretty well. I mean, Takahe, granted, they're not like restricted by temperature. Um, I think the way they're doing it, well, they're doing it in Dunedin at Orokanui. They've kind of just moved them to a range where you wouldn't naturally find them, but it's at a more comfortable, um, consistent temperature that that they, they would have experienced yeah. in the past. I think that's just really interesting with like, obviously conservation and climate change are going to go hand in hand. Um, like we already knew that, but it's just even in terms of like the evolution of some species, it's just so interlinked. Yeah. And it kind of segues on to why we have Amy Blake here. Yeah. Kind of segues um, quite nicely in there. Yeah. I, I think maybe we should get Amy just to introduce herself and what she's studying. I know Ben and I are just full of questions um, about, about her field, but we'll get Amy just to introduce herself for a bit. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, as I said, hi, everyone. My name is Amy and I'm a student at Lincoln University doing um, currently doing a master's of management in agribusiness, but I will go on to do a master's of commerce um, by thesis. Um, which will be, it's looking like it'll be in the areas of um, sustainable land management and um, farmer decision making, um, which is quite exciting. Um, but yeah, I did my undergrad at Otago University and I did that in commerce and marketing. And I, yeah, after that, I went and worked at a big multinational company called Mars for a little while. Um yeah, I worked on the food portfolio there. So brands like Uncle Ben's, Master Foods, Domio, um, really enjoyed what I did. And I'm a passionate marketer, but sort of realized quite quickly it wasn't necessarily the right sort of food. And it was funny, I was actually on a, on a panel um, for a film called The Biggest Little Farm um, that I would highly encourage anyone who's interested to watch. And um, yeah, I, I volunteer with an organization called Generation Zero and I'm a bit of a climate activist and I got questioned on that panel. They said, you're sitting here, you know, being an activist for the climate, yet you work for this massive multinational company in marketing and it doesn't really align. So, yep, I <laughs> quit my job um, and came back to, to follow my passions in food and farming and people. So here I am. Yeah, I think two things that I have to say on that is like obviously like what a turn from sort of like your undergrad to like your postgrad so you've obviously had like a lot of experiences in your own life that haven't just come from working university that have pushed you in a different direction mm. um, but the other thing is like um, land management never been more relevant especially like there's been IPCC reports recently about sustainable land use and stuff like that do you want to talk about some of maybe like the personal um, reasons that like you decided to like have that sort of change yeah yeah for sure well I've always had a massive interest in human health and you know what it what it takes for us to thrive and sort of went through my own health journey um, and I actually got quite sick after university they ended up finding like a um, Cecil serrated polyp like precancerous one in one of my large intestines um, at the age of 21. Yeah, and that's I, a bit of a shock. Yeah, and I was I ended up getting all these tests and whatnot and the doctor was like, yeah, it's basically just because of genetics, you're genetically predisposed and I was sort of just didn't accept 
that argument. I was like, I have no doubt my environment and my lifestyle contributed to me getting sick. And it sort of led me down this journey and that I quickly realized humans can't be truly healthy while our planet is sick. It's, you know, we're actually... You know, we Part think, of the ecosystem. Yeah, we, we, we're not at all separate or exempt from nature. We are a part of it and ended up sort of down my own journey. And I mean, I was raised rurally um, on a dairy farm and my dad exports onions and grows onions all over the world. Um, so I have always sort of had a connection to the land and our food, but I sort of took a step a step back, I was working in food marketing and I sort of looked looked at the picture in front of me and I realized never before as you know, a human society have we been so disconnected from our plates, from our food and from our planet. And, you know, technology with all its benefits in a time we've never been so more connected, never before have we been so, so able. Dis- but yeah, but uh, so able, but also we've never been so disconnected before from the, from the actual world around us. And um, yeah, so ended up deciding to actually, yeah, follow, follow my heart and do align my actions with what I believe in. Um, so yeah, had decided to come back to study and I'm really loving it so far. Yeah, you're just a couple kilometers out of the city over in Lincoln, yeah. which is awesome. <laughs> it's funny, my parents were always like, get a degree so you don't have to become like a farmer, but I've ended up coming full circle and <laughs> I'm back, Going back to that in <laughs> deep in agriculture, um, which I love. But I also work part-time at the AEIU, which is the Agribusiness and Economics Research Unit um, at the university and we they do all sorts of amazing um research on climate change and our primary industries um again if anyone's interested would highly recommend checking out some of their studies they have some great literature um so yeah working there as a research assistant as well um which has been awesome so i'm learning heaps cool <laughs> I, I know ben's probably itching to to butter now and ask some questions because i know ben is a man of the planet also and he's very passionate about um, the environment and yeah. um, ecology and how we fit into that as well. And land use is like one of the big things. Mm-hmm. Have you got any questions there? Ben? Well, I was going to bring up something that Amy discussed with me over summer that has stuck with me. And I don't know anything about it. And that's to do with carbon <laughs> sequestration, especially around agriculture. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. fill everyone in? on on what what that entails that's something that i'm really interested in because like that almost goes sort of maybe it goes part and parcel but maybe it goes at odds with sort of using land for like pastures but also like using it for like a sequestration do you want to just like talk about how that works together yeah it's interesting because when you talk about carbon sequestration people always think of trees and planting trees and all sorts of things but no one really thinks about um, other forms of sequestration in regards to our soil and so soil is something that's been so sadly misunderstood for so long in the fact that most people don't realize that our soils are actually alive they're a living entity they're a living breathing entity and they work in a symbolic like a, a relationship with the plants so I'm sure everyone is aware of the the process of photosynthesis <laughs> and again I, I'm I'm not I'm not a I'm not a scientist um so 
if you are interested in science in this field, I'd recommend heading to um, people like Graham Sait, Ratan Lal, um, Nicole Masters from New Zealand. She wrote a book for, called the, For the Love of Soil. It's amazing. She, they'll explain it way better than I will. But basically, the, when it comes to the crux of this, so plants inhale carbon dioxide through the process of photosynthesis. And what happens is plants work in a relationship with our soils and that like uh, humans you think about we have a microbiome right and it's inside our stomach and we work in the you know we get our food and everything we work in relationship with that microbiome so for plants their their microbiome is on the outside of their roots and they work with a bunch of microorganisms and fungi in the soils trading carbon sugars for nutrients and things um in in the soil um, it's alive and what happens is those carbon sugars end up being built in as you know stable soil carbon that remains there as long as our soils aren't disturbed so it's crazy the capacity that these soils have to hold more carbon um, and I think it's it's something that's lost a bit because soil is almost always like clouded by its nitrogen fixing ability like it's almost like everyone's always talking about the nitrogen in the soil but it has a role in terms of carbon which is like the most one of the most abundant after sort of nitrogen oxygen atoms in the universe well the issue with carbon is that like carbon's made to be this like vilified thing you know like carbon you know it's it's not the carbon that's the problem it's where it is that it that is the key problem and there's far too much in our atmosphere and we've lost gigatons and gigatons out of our soils through things like tilling continuous tilling new zealand in comparison to the rest of the world it's less degraded because we've had less history where you know we colonized a bit later than in other parts but um you know, things like erosion and compaction are huge issues in New Zealand. And unfortunately, the industrialized model, you know, it doesn't sustainable. It, for, it doesn't keep that environment. Yeah, it's, you know, farming doesn't have to be a problem, but it depends on how you do it. And there's practices like regenerative agriculture that focus on building that soil carbon. Because the thing is with soil carbon, it's not just about storing carbon, you know, to get it out of the atmosphere and for, you know, to prevent climate change, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually a win, win, win. We're facing more droughts, you know, we're facing more extreme weather events like floods and building up that soil the carbon. Yeah. Is, the soil. Yeah. And not only that, but it's, we've lost most of the nutrient density out of our food. And this is because, you know, we abuse most of our soils through things like monocultures and, thing, you know, spraying glyphosate and pesticides, insecticides, which again kills those microorganisms, which are fundamental in bringing those nutrients and things into the plants. I think they did a test on lycopene and tomatoes in a supermarket um, over the, in, in the US, which is one of the like polyphenol antioxidants. And they found that compared to the 1950s, our food has lost all of its nutrient density, which I mean, again, is plays into the large role of human human functioning, getting really sick. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how much, have you guys ever heard of the insecticide called glyphosate? Uh, yeah, I have panica. That's 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 what I'm doing my study on. Oh, really? No way. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, intimately associated with glyphosate at the moment. Oh, okay. 
Okay, well, this could be an interesting conversation then. Because from what I understand of glyphosate, and please fill me in if I'm wrong, it, it shuts down what's called the sugar may pathway in, you know, in all other th- things apart from mammals because mammals don't have a sugar may pathway, so it kills everything else. And the issue with that being that sugar may pathway is responsible for creating the essential branch chain amino acids that are necessary for yeah. basic human functioning. Yeah, the building of yes. all the important And unfortunately, materials. as humans, we're reliant on those branch chain amino acids, but we don't produce them. We are reliant on them from our diet. So as, you, as soon as you spray this chemical that shuts down <laughs> the basic building blocks of human, you know, proteins for our capacity to run we've seen this exponential health crisis um whether that be cancers diabetes parkinson's alzheimer's etc at the same rate that we've been spraying this chemical on our food yeah panic is probably intimately um intimately knowledgeable on the application of how that affects species because you're in the you're in the the marine world aren't you ben yeah, I am. I am looking at fish embryos and, 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 well, with exposure to very, very small concentrations of glyphosate. The buzzy thing about glyphosate is that no one's really sure what quantity should be acceptable in the water. It's buzzy as. Because in the US, it's 700 micrograms per litre. And then in Australia, it's 1,000 micrograms per litre. So there's been a lot of studies into glyphosate, but no one really knows how bad it is for you, how bad it is for the environment, what's going on. Is it carcinogenic? No one really knows at all. Well, if you look in, all you have to really do is look at the lawsuits that Monsanto and Bayer have had to settle in regards to that it was proven to cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and cancers in some people. They've had to settle something, some ridiculous sum of money to get these disputes out of the way because what glyphosate was born out of the war when you know out it's a it's a cousin of agent orange that they used to spray all over the foliage um out of the war and they finished the war and they had all this you know they were like well what what are we going to do now so they remarketed it so successfully um as this product which is now sprayed all over our food and all over um you know, our pastures and stuff. I think going almost full circle background to what you're saying, it's about like anything that you're, that we're doing in Mm -hmm. terms of our land use, which is sort of like lowering the level of either the soil's quality to produce um, sort of natural growth um, or going to affect what is growing on there Mm -hmm. is going to be a concern to humans because we're all part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, And it's important that, the, that the planet obviously within a sequestration and climate change like it has an important role and in, in almost every part of the sort of planet does whether that be ocean sequestration mm-hmm. or um, whether it's the soil or it's the trees or what's growing um, but also like it's it's about the health of people as well and mm-hmm. I think that's a message that you really quite clearly understand is the importance of like people's health and the yes. planet's health together yeah I think it's about time that humans start realizing we're not separate or exempt from nature. And I think 
our food systems are just so broken. I think all in all, they're responsible for about a quarter of the world's global emissions, whether that be due to land management practices that can, again, either degrade or regenerate the environment. And then beyond that, there's the systems and issues like food waste, um, food miles, transportation, um, so yeah, it's it's something that for for the world to you know keep within the one point five degree necessary temperature warming is fundamentally going to have to change, yeah. and that's why I'd love to ask you two just for a second. Like when you guys think think of your food, and again anyone anyone listening as well, have a think about it. Where where do you think it comes from? What's what's your relation to your to your plates and to your food? Yeah. Have you ever been on a farm? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good question. My exposure really is like lifestyle farms. I haven't come from an agricultural background. Mm. Anytime I've been on a farm, it's more um, either it's sort of people doing sort of like a bit of land use in terms of farming, whether that be for like agriculture Mm -hmm. um, or what have. But like my association as someone who lives very like city central, very urban focused is like, is like when am I going to make my meal or get my meal? I'm never thinking about how do my how do the ingredients that I go to the supermarket to purchase how did they get there yeah. and like how how do I know that those are the right and best options for me? Yeah. How about you, Panika? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I haven't spent much time in and around farms. I've spent a lot of time on my auntie's wool farm, but that's completely different to a food to table farm or pasture to table. I don't know. I feel like it's in the modern age. It's very blasé. A lot of people will view they get food from the supermarket and then that's 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 it. But I feel like there is a growing movement, especially in our generation, to be more focused on where this food has come from, how has it been grown, what are the practices around it. And I feel like the farmer's market movement is excellent. You're never not going to enjoy going to a farmer's market, but I feel like there needs to be more of a push especially away from those big chains that import food from, well, just unnecessary food from, from around the world, adding to that, yeah. adding to that carbon mileage and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. What well, I had another question, which was in sort of like terms of land use and stuff, one of the big things that has sort of like come out globally in terms of research is mm-hmm. the IPCC reports. It's obviously the intergovernmental workforce of like people doing their research yeah um and they one of their big ones was land use within the last was it this year Mm -hmm. the land use one yeah and that had some stern words about how we're using sort of the land and being like hey there is like a huge problem that needs to be changed it's one of the number one things that needs to change for climate change Mm -hmm. how do you how important do you think that is for getting the message out and do you think what other communication outlets are, are there do you think for change I mean, it is a bit of a tricky one because change at the crux of it will come from farmers themselves. And I think it's all very well and good for urbanites, you know, to sit back and, you know, look at farmers and be like, hey, you need to change. But at the same time, farmers are often locked into high debt systems and are under immense pressure to produce more food for less. And as the end consumer wants the cheapest food, and again, there is a there is a big movement f- against you know like people 
who do care about where their food is coming from and it is starting to awaken but the vast majority of people and a lot a lot of people can't even af- afford to think about where their food comes from so i think there's a bit a big disconnect again between consumers and the farmers and then beyond that between farmers and policy I mean all you have to do is look at the especially in New Zealand that things like the howler protests um, farmers are really really struggling and they're stressed and they're worried they, they feel very disenfranchised is probably yeah. the word, from any of the policy being made yeah and I mean I think maybe that's the crux of the question I was really asking is how do you get not the communication channel but the dialogue between mm. Between the academics who, you know, have all the <laughs> science and numbers and whatever, yeah. but aren't out on a farm, they're the ones that, at the end of the day, consumers yeah. in an urban environment going to the supermarket to get their food. Yeah. And farmers who are doing the groundwork in it, and it's them who, the change, where the change will come from. Yes, exactly. How, well, how do you think that dialogue has to happen? Well, in all honesty, farmers need to be see, feel like they have a seat at the table. And what's, what's a good thing is... If farmers can be shown a way to do it that's profitable at the end of the day, they will. Yeah. They're open to change. They're, but they're running a business as well yeah. and their livelihood depends on it. So Ex- for them, that's exactly. got to be a hard line. Yeah. And I think people, you know, really far- – it's so sad, you know, when did farmers stop becoming our heroes? It's only really in recent ages that food's so abundant, people don't really value it anymore. But you look just back in our grandparents' ages or, you know, when when food was actually scarce and it's only taken, what, like 50 years um, to completely industrialise this, this, the whole system and you know, disconnect people and people look at farmers and, you know, I think they're villains. Um, I mean, a whole nother conversation of topic I would like to talk about is the poor cow who's been so unfairly vilified as the most, you know, um, climate change causing thing on the planet. Um, but I, we can come back to that. Um, but yeah, sort of coming back to it in terms of, in terms of initiating change in policy, that's what I'm actually looking to do my thesis on um, next year is looking at farmer decision making, what information is available, what's missing and what 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 really needs to happen there. And I also think there needs to be clear communication between consumers and farmers and so con- consumers can actually identify, you know, which farms are doing you know, good land management practices and bad because at the moment you can go into wherever and you can't see that unless you go and actually connect with a farmer and at the supermarket. And one of the big things is like they should be rewarded in the bottom line yeah. for their work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, and that comes as much from consumers as it does from policy or promotion or it's, whoever whoever the intermediate steps are. Yeah. Um, the consumers should be rewarding the mm. producers who are, who are doing the, the big changes and, and are really sort of aware of it and, and putting the hard yards in. Yeah. And I think it's important too that consumers and I mean everyone, you know, it's important these land management practices, we know they need to change. We know we need to stop tilling and eroding our soils. You know, all you have to do is look at studies and massive, massive faults in human human civilization all result from degrading our soils to the part, you know, a whole the whole economy is actually built on agriculture. The only reason we can, you know, divert labor into other areas like manufacturing and technology is because we have enough food yeah. to feed everyone. And at the crux of it again is farming and food. <laughs> and um, anyone who goes to the supermarket, anyone who puts food in their mouth, 
owes it to a farmer and not many people ever think about that or are even grateful for the food and they don't understand the labor and the energy and time that it actually put into that and I mean it's it's a miracle in itself you know growing growing food like that is um as as I think our flatmates could attest because yes. we have our veggie garden out yep. the back yep. um, and we are constantly attacked by domestic cats who go and tear <laughs> up our veggie garden. Um, so the and the miracle that anything has been able to grow in our little veggie, veggie garden, garden is incredible. Yeah. Well, beyond that too, like people just need to sort of you know, things like composting. You can change your kitchen from, you know, or your food waste from part of the problem to part of the solution in some easy steps. And I think, you know, so it's not only up to farmers to make these practices, but it's up to everyone to support and play their role um, rather than point the finger at each other. And so how do you think at the end of the day, change can happen? If if Amy Blake was president of the world, (laughs) what would be the steps and, and what would be the first steps that you'd look to do to sort of facilitate this dialogue and to help people make their changes whoever they are consumers producers honestly at every single level whether that be farmers whether that be consumers whether that be policy I think it comes down at the end of the day to connection and consciousness to the world the world around us and each other as well I think we need to stop seeing ourselves and each other as separate, whether that be from each other, our land or anything like that. But as soon as you actually, you know, take a step back and listen to the, listen to what the climate is telling us rather than trying to control and manipulate our outputs of food through this industrialized system. And it's just, it's a, it's a cycle, the system, because what ends up happening is you degrade your soils. Um, so you get weak plants and weak plants, just like weak humans, get sick and attacked by pests and disease. And then as soon as you get that, you become reliant on more, you know, nitrogen and more pesticide and more insecticide. And we've seen vicious it's a cycle. vicious cycle and you just become dependent on it. And again, um, you know, you just have to look at what happened when America eroded their soils to a point where they got those dust bowls and they got famine. And it's actually scary how, you know, apparently we're eroding soils at a rate of like three football fields every like 20 seconds or something ridiculous. And we talk about, you know, losing our trees and everything too, but soil has been missing from the conversation for so long. And I'd highly recommend everyone go and watch the Netflix documentary, Kiss the Ground, you walk away loving soil as much as I do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's. I mean, it is American, um, but it's it's a good documentary and they explain it well. I, th- I think your message boils really nicely down to awareness and it's awareness it of where food comes from. It's awareness of what change you can make. It's, yeah. it's awareness of the planet, being more aware with, with like your connection to the planet. Yeah. It's... And I think from your background in marketing, mm. especially, it's it's a really nice synergy of where you're at and what you're doing. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, it's really nice to hear. <laughs> well, that is my, my passion. I know I'll end up in the food system somewhere doing something hopefully useful, but I just, you know, especially as a marketer, I see a huge opportunity to connect people back to their plates in our planet through thoughtful messaging, um, which again, We'll see what the future holds. I'm not too sure at this stage. But yeah, I actually am doing a summer research project on the um, the disconnection between consumers and their plates. And I will be asking a number of people researching what, what do they really know about our food? Um, 
which again, and it all, it's all part of a wider, the wider picture and bigger picture and that humans can't be healthy while our planet's, you know, is sick too. Um, and yeah, our food systems don't have to be a problem. Cows are part of a healthy ecosystem cycle when you have them on grass parts, pastures as well. They play a huge role in building up healthy soil carbon when you're not overgrazing. You know, they had this... Um, the study in South Africa and um, there was there's a scientist over there, Alan Savory, and now he's a huge promoter of what's called holistic grazing where you, um, you know, strategically graze cattle to build soil carbon um, and increase pasture growth. But basically they were having these massive issues with desertification. and Which, which is ironic because his last name is Savory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was a he was a scientist over there at the time, and they decided the desertification was happening because there was too many livestock on the plains. So they went and slaughtered forty thousand elephants. And after that happened, guess what? So the desertification shit. got worse <laughs> because the, the thing is, as humans, you know, if you have a degraded ecosystem or land, and you just leave it. It's not going to just get better. You, there's a whole wide functioning ecosystem that needs to be in place. Yeah. And as soon as you remove one part of that ecosystem, they removed wolves in Yellowstone and the ecosystem started to fall apart and they put them back in and things started to function again as normal. Now they've decided that. They now they've decided that they actually want to get rid of them. So no. Really yeah, they recently they recently got rid of the protection. Oh, for goodness <laughs> sakes. It's like when the massive change, I think, for farmers is, you know, they used to have this organic mindset. We didn't used to farm with all of these pesticides, insecticides and controlling. We moved to this technical separated mindset where they don't even recognize that the soil underneath is a living, breathing entity. And if you ask Dr. Ratan Lau, who's a soil scientist, he's he's won a lot of awards. Um, he thinks it should have rights, like any other any other living thing. And that's a huge <laughs> movement in wider science and, and yeah. also politics at the moment is, is the rights of the environment. Because yeah. um, as soon as you give them, them rights, you would be able to see how much we're just absolutely um, sort of like to pillaging yeah. all these, all the whole environment. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, that's part of like a really wide movement at the moment, really, with environmental rights and protections, mm. especially New Zealand's been pivotal in that and that some of our rivers have their own rights yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like just one of the maybe philosophical solutions that we change the mindsets of people. And that's, and that's again, what it comes down to is it's, it's mindset and it's how you look at things. Um, and especially with land, land management practices. And I do have a bit of a problem with the word sustainable when it comes to sustainable farming, because a lot of what we're doing now could be somewhat considered sustainable, but it's still degrading land. And so I think it's key, you know, to to head towards a more regenerative mindset rather than a sustainable, um, especially when it comes to farming. Um, and there's some amazing work already being done in New Zealand um, in the regenerative ag world, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, and there's, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. So it's an exciting time to be <laughs> in the industry, but a lot of pressures. Like I've been involved with Hiwaka Ekenoa developing the agricultural emissions policy. Um, 
that will be rolling out in 2025. And so I've been involved in giving feedback on the pricing mechanism um, involved there. It's a hugely which, political and big issue, that one. I'm honestly, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it rolls out. Um, Panik, Panik and I talked in in length uh, a couple of years back on Breather Science about ETS and carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, the agriculture's exclusion and now inclusion, and it's got a bit of a free ride with uh, mm-hmm. um, the penalties that a lot of the industries have. Um, and maybe how some carbon pricing systems are broken. But it'll be interesting to see. It's The future holds a lot, I think. It does. Um, I'm very excited because there's people like you, Amy, um, <laughs> who are out there who are trying to make a, a, a big change. Parker, do you have any you have any thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, not off the top of my head. You did a really bloody good job, Amy. That was holy smokes. <laughs> I'm not I'm sure if I um I sort of just came and just rambled. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. I um, think of, often when we're on these sort of topics, Ben and I talk about the doom and gloom. Yeah. Um, but we don't really talk about how to, how it can change. And I think you really one of the strong messages you have said is there is a way to change and yes. that there are outlooks. There are, and I just encourage like you talked about farmers markets, Ben, but encourage people to learn a bit more where about where their food is coming from. Go to a farmers market and actually talk to a farmer. Grow your own food. That's the thing. I think the best thing we can do to build in food security. Like I hate to say it, but we're gonna see massive civilizations soon all over the world displaced due to climatic weather events, which will make their regions no longer suitable for them to live in. And New Zealand is in a very privileged, um, privileged, and very special position in that we're one of the few countries that exports far more food than we will ever need. We're able to produce, yeah, The security you know, in, in its own. Oh, it's huge. And food security has become, along with food safety, some of the top attributes that consumers all over the world care about. Um, and, you know, New Zealand's going to be in a very special position where the food, you know, we make is going to be needed all over the world. Very... Yeah, sooner than we probably will realise um, or like to admit. But beyond that, New Zealand needs to, you know, make sure its practices are again not following necessarily the same steps of heavily industrialised models that are degrading our land. Um, it's going to have a big role and it's important that it considers how it's going to yes. continue going in the future. Absolutely. And I think, you know, farming doesn't have to be the problem. It can be part of the solution. Um, if we do it right. And again, that comes down to how we're really doing it. Is it, you know, regenerative or is it degenerative? Are our cows on pasture? Are they, you know, being grazed in a way that promotes pasture growth and, you know, builds soil carbon? Or are they being overgrazed and compacted and left bare? You know, nature hates being bare. If you ever drive past or out through fields and you see bare ground, honestly, you know, there's a reason nature's always covered yeah. as soon as you it's have always reclaiming if you if you give it a chance to reclaim with well it'll that's why weeds will grow <laughs> or something will grow there because as soon as you leave it bare it's way open to um erosion and you know our food system is we're reliant on that top that top four inches of topsoil and so yeah i think i think soil needs to be bought and farmers as well um need to be given a, a seat at the table more more often um but yeah. 
that's lovely. Thank you very much, Amy. I'm going to thank you on behalf <laughs> yeah. of Ben because he's, he's in Dunedin and there's a, li- a slight bit of lag, um, but I can see your lovely face. So thank you so much for, for driving in from Lincoln to do this. That's um, right. And it's been awesome to have you on, on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Finally, finally got round to it. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, tune in in two weeks' time. We'll have another one coming at you from wherever me and Flynn find ourselves. So, um, cheers. See ya. was a Radio 1 91 FM podcast, but find more at r1.co.nz.